first a poem. It's a Rilke poem entitled The Night. You, darkness, of whom I am born, I love you more than the flame that limits the world to the circle that illuminates and excludes all the rest. But the dark embraces everything, shapes and shadows, creatures and me, people, nations, just as they are. It lets me imagine a great presence stirring beside me. I believe in the night. So welcome to my podcast. This is Hints and Guesses. I'm Kent Dobson. Thanks for joining me today. I, it's a cold, dark day here in Michigan. The kind of day where one thinks of Rilke and the encroaching, ever-present, luminous, and sweet darkness. And... Um, I want to do a podcast today on this season, the season of Advent, the season of the winter solstice, the season where we go to Home Depot and buy lights. And because our ones from last year stopped working, like the ones from the year before also stopped working. And uh, it's the time of year where our attention or I should say our consciousness is is alerted by this thin line between night and day, between uh, clouds and sunshine, between moon and moonlight and sunlight. It's the time of year where something is encroaching. And I love this poem by Rilke because in part he's saying that the darkness that encroaches embraces everything. Shapes and shadows and creatures and me and people and nations just as they are. There's, it's like there's a way of seeing or being that belongs more to the night than to the day with its sharpness of vision and its clarity, and its capacity to take in detail, where night brings uh, a kind of blurring of things. There's uh, a way in which the edges of things are softened. And in a way, I think Rilke, maybe he's hinting at, something that I've felt kind of in my, my own life, that there's something sweet about darkness itself. And, and it's like we can move around. And maybe even what sometimes gets a bad rap, our, our own melancholy, but our own uh, turn inward has some elbow room in, in the night. It can also be terrifying and um, and scary, 
And we start to feel at times, I wonder if the light will ever come. And there's actually something about the waiting. And, and that's what I think is so missing from Advent. My wife said this actually the other day. And she was with some Franciscan sisters and they were talking, they were just emphasizing, I think maybe, maybe without even trying to make an overt point that Advent is the season of waiting. It's a waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and an anticipation. Nothing in our culture is like that. I literally, I hate when people say literally and I do it all the time. Um, I was just online scrolling through some things that I wanted to buy my kids for Christmas and annoyed that the shipping was uh, two days. Like, oh, that's, that's not going to work for me. That's not instantaneous enough. And, and, and I don't know. So it feels like something is lost. Something is lost uh, in, a, in a world of instantaneous access and and even symbolically about this season anticipating the coming of the light and or the coming of the sun both in both respects s-o-n s-u-n uh the 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 coming of the birth of the divine of the mystery in the world once again like let's get straight to it let's turn on all the lights let's set up the nativity set. Let's, um, oh God, I was just at the mall because I had to be. And it's like, there's so much goddamn noise, just light and, and blaring of Christmas songs and pushing and shoving. And I mean, I'm serious. I don't mean like in a mean way, but just like out of my way, I've got, I've got things to do. That was the, the vibe of, of the mall. And it's just like this, um, it's radiating chaos, really, and urgency and immediacy, and as if to keep something at bay. And maybe what this kind of insanity is keeping at bay is what Rilke is describing here as the night, the the the, the embrace of the darkness, um, where even. As Rilke says, his imagination, let me imagine a great presence stirring beside me. In the night, you know, when you're not in the mall, but in, a, in the moonlit lawn, some, you can feel the great presence and the mysterious way life is and the mystery of, of the season we're in. And yes, it feels like anticipation, but there's something even just in the waiting, I think, that the soul loves and the heart loves. And, and I think that's, that's maybe what the tradition of Advent is trying to instill in us. I mean, in some ways, it's just connecting us back to the earth. I, I know many even of my listeners are aren't very religious or they were religious and they're, now they're not. I know we have to then talk about what the hell that word means. And, um, but many of, many of us are, have been, have been oversaturated with, um, traditions and, uh, with, uh, religious doctrine and, and ideology, I think. Um, but 
there's there is great wisdom and one of the things that i guess it, it occurred to me when i first started studying the bible that all of the the festivals and feasts in the hebrew scriptures and all of the ones in the in the what eventually became known as the christian calendar are nature based are rooted in the earth and the seasons and the turning of the seasons and are connected to harvest and sun and rain and and moon and um and solstice and that's such a good thing it's like um i don't know in our in our artificial world we forget that we are earth and that there's a season of impregnation that needs time to gestate if that's the right word that that needs time to grow and and to be embraced in this womb of darkness I mean, these are very serious questions that I'm asking myself, and, and I guess I'm asking you. What is waiting in the womb? Is, is waiting in the darkness? Is being nourished by the night? And needs time and solitude and aloneness and quiet and, the, you know, the opposite of a holiday party. And of course, I'm not against them. I, you know, I go to them too occasionally, but where it's maybe if we can drink ourselves and play the music, drink ourselves into into oblivion and play the music as loud as possible, we don't have to feel the the settling down of everything and th the stillness and the, my own solitude, my own my own. Uh, limits because in those kind of spaces the seed of you that wants to grow and spread its branches against a future sky that's david white the seed of you that wants to grow and spread its branches against a future sky that seed needs time that seed needs darkness that seed needs the womb that seed needs advent that seed season needs a slow anticipation of what is not yet. I taught at a church a couple weeks ago, which I haven't been to in a while. I teach at C3 here in West Michigan, and it's kind of a non-church church. Check us out, um, and which I love. But I was at a, a more traditional church in, in Denver, more evangelical, I should say. And it was, it was cool because they had these Advent candles, and there was no you know pomp and circumstance around them. They just were lit. And um, I just noticed them and I just thought, oh, it's so interesting. They're just two candles here. And next week it'll be three candles. And you don't even have to explain it. It doesn't need any explanation. It's just one small light at a time. Um, and I think even the act of lighting a single candle, so from darkness to light, from darkness to light, and you blow it out and you start again, and you blow it out and you start again. And that I think is so tasty to the soul's way of being, the deep self, the true self, the earth self, the mystery of who we all are. And, um, and, and I don't want to sound too morbid, but, but Advent is, is, and I think the closing of the summer and the closing of the fall and the, and the deep, um, underground that the winter is 
is like a reminder of our own mortality. Like, we're all going to die. 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 And once a year, um, we can feel that. And it's a, it's a kind of a precious grief and sadness and beauty to such a notion. We're all going to die. And, and yet something is to be born. Maybe something is being born. And I think the greatest symbolic mystery that Christianity has offered the world is the incarnation. And when I say that, the word incarnation, I'm saying it like I would say a word like God or like I would say a word like soul in that I don't know what it means. It's, it, it's a symbol that points beyond itself. That's what a symbol is. It's, I know we all end up worshiping the symbol um, or the image, we could say, not the mystery to which it points. That's always the pull of idolatry, you know, um, bow down before the symbol or the word or the doctrine or whatever. Um, but something like incarnation, just to be made flesh, that the mystery is being made flesh, the enfleshment of things. This is Christianity, I think. I think it's its greatest gift, and in some ways it's still untapped. I think we, since we literalized it so much and says, happened to Jesus physically in the person l- like never before, and we, we fixed it there. We, we put it in a frame and hung it on the wall. You know, actually, that's what we did. We, we took the incarnation and hung it on the wall and said it happened then. And I mean, maybe that's what we always do to the kind of rush of, of mysterious insight is we try to fix it, fix, um, fix it in place. So that it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, so it doesn't leak out. And of course, that's, I guess, what the ego is always doing. But the ego has no say um, in the presence of the deepest symbols, like God and soul and incarnation, and, um, or the life-death life cycle, you could say. And anyway, um, the, in, and enfleshment, incarnation in this sense, takes time. And that's what so struck me about the sermon that I gave a couple weeks ago, because they asked me to teach on Matthew. And um, I I actually, I was about to say, I enjoy reading the Bible. I I don't know if that's exactly the case. Uh, Not that I sit down and read it sort of for um, devotional purposes or for leisure or something, but um, I like being asked in a way to return to it. I don't know if I would just do it on my own, but they said, teach on this passion. They gave me very specific verses where Matthew, um, according to the book of Matthew, an angel appears to Joseph and says, um, explains sort of the situation with, with Mary and says, you know, take her to be your wife and so forth. And he, and he does. And what was kind of cool to me was just reading it and because I haven't taught in a sort of a mainstream church in a while, I hadn't been around these passages and it's weird to read them now. And maybe this is true for you, but it's like, oh, it's like, oh my God, there's, there's so much in here. It's so rich. Maybe not being saturated with it for a while um, was a kind of gift because it was like, it was almost as if I had never read it before. And I know I'm, you know, I have a study Bible. Of course, I've read it, you know. I'm sure I have notes. But 
I didn't go and consult what I had thought about, you know, before or had footnoted or said, well, this Greek word is blah, blah, blah. It's just the story itself and the images and, and it's like the passage was pregnant with something. That's the way it felt. And, and it was pregnant with anticipation. And it so struck me that, um, how unusual the story is. And I mean, if, if, you know, if God, whatever that is, if God were to come to you and say, Hey, I've got a plan and I'm going to, I'd like to enter humanity in some new way. And, and he might say to you, I'm always in everything, but, um, I, there's something about the human story that I'd like to enter. And here's my big plan. My big plan is that um, through the divine wind, the Holy Spirit, that's really what that means, I'm going to uh, impregnate an out-of-wedlock teenager in a tiny corner of the Roman Empire, and she's going to be Jewish, which is, at that time period, I think fairly, you could say, is a pretty conservative religious environment. And that's my big plan. And, um, and, and so in other words, I need, a, I kind of need, uh, a woman. I can't, I can't think of another way. I, I you know, um, I, I'm going to rely on a, a pregnant teenager. And, and in fact, um, this is going to happen before they get married. And so I'm going to have to explain to this to Joseph. And so, and actually I need these, I guess, teenage parents, first time kid to raise this, divine one or or um this incarnated one i kind of need parent these you know parents to do this and um this is my big plan don't you think you'd be like hey that doesn't sound like a good idea like um couldn't you i can think of a few much better ideas if you want to appear just appear you know or if you want to come in human form just why not Hey, remember the Adam and Eve story? Just form a little guy out of clay, you know, call that Jesus, put that on the world. You have to deal with the messiness of parents and, and, uh, and, and controversy and doubt. And after all, his neighbors will just simply call him a bastard and he'll have a kind of stigma if this is the case. And, and anyway, I don't know if you know this or not, but parents, especially first time parents kind of screw things up. They don't know what they're doing. Why? Why? This does not seem like a very good plan. And that's, I think, what makes it so fascinating as a symbol. It's almost as if God is saying, um, in the story, in the image, that the divine is comfortable in complexity, in controversy, in smallness, in, in things that are immoral, and get a bad name and a bad rap and is comfortable with teenagers and pregnant ones at that and and comfortable waiting in in the womb in the slowness of the womb in the slowness of of things growing in the dark in the night and that's the way from the christian point of view the divine enters humanity in some unique way. That's the image of the incarnation. And of course, that's only scratching the surface because uh, any theologian, 
that's any good, we'll say the incarnation isn't made up with the person of Jesus. It's, it's in the very foundations of the Genesis story. It's, it's the word of God or the divine, something of the divine impregnating all things. It's where does, where does reality end and God begin? That, you know, that's, that's Christianity. It's most mystical saying it's all God. It's all of God. It's all in God. It's all, it's all the, the words of God. The incarnation didn't happen. It's happening in the ever-expanding 14.5 billion-year-old living, breathing universe. That is, of course, I'm, I'm feeding in a little bit of my own, own bias here. What, when I think of God, whatever God is, I think that's reality. Whatever reality is the divine, is, is the great mystery in its, in its sum total, in the intelligence of its, of its totality. The incarnation is basically saying through an ancient story to ancient people who had a certain worldview that we don't really have anymore, it's saying the divine is comfortable in the human and the human is comfortable in the divine. And there's a kind of conversation between humanity and divinity and between nature and divinity, between reality and the divine and, and, and the ordinary. That's what I think the, it's saying in its most um, potent way. And we miss that. We, we miss that the divine sparks are everywhere when we simply worship it in a story and look back nostalgically, which we're not really doing anymore anyway. We kind of want to, it's, it's like we, we tear open gifts under the tree and, and we put little Jesus on his, in his little manger there. It's kind of to sanction the whole thing. Like, well, we, you know, I know this is really about Jesus, but it's actually really about Amazon, you know? And, you know, it's like, like he's absolving us, you know? I don't know if you've ever been to an Episcopal church or Catholic church. They have this amazing moment where the priest absolves you of your sins, which is kind of amazing. Um, I mean, the, the Protestant sort of rebellious vagabond heretic thinks, I, thanks, I don't need you absolving me. Uh, the other side of me says, hey, thanks a lot, man. I really did, you know, screw things up the past month. Um, that, thanks. Um, anyway, why was I talking about, oh, that's sort of like the manger scene, you know, like Jesus doing, doing the, his hands back and forth, like he's a conductor saying, hey, I, I, ab I absolve you of your Amazon purchases. Thanks for worshiping me, you know. That's what Christmas has become. And I'm not being cynical. I think you would probably agree. It's not only that, of course. But um, that's what it seems like. And, and I don't know, we miss out on the invitation of, of the darkness, of the womb, of what's being born in me, through me. Um, and I might even go further. What of the divine is being born in me, through me, is, or is pregnant, is waiting to be born in the world? Some, some truth, some act of uh, goodness, some um, way of being in the world that is both my, my, the fullness of who I am and, and the fullness of God being incarnated yet again. I don't know when this first occurred to me, but a few years ago, I mean, it came as kind of a thought, but it's like um, the incarnation in its most mystical sense happens every time there's 
another life emerging up out of the darkness of the womb every time a baby's born. Maybe every time any seed is born is another manifestation of the incarnation of the, of the, of what are, what do the Kabbalists say? Um, like the fragments of light, something like that. It's been a while since I've looked at Kabbalist stuff, uh, Jewish mystical stuff, but it's like some phrase, I don't quite have it, but it's like the fragments of the divine as if the divine is, the sparks of the divine, I'm looking for that, are scattered all over the place. And and every time there's a birth and, and a new life and a new entry, um, even if it's with pregnant teenagers in controversial circumstances, there is the mystery making itself known once again. And, and there's anticipation and wonder and possibility. And I might, maybe I, I want to add um, something else just to the birth narrative, because I'm working on a new book and it's like a, I was going to say it's a big book. I don't know how big it will be. It feels big to me. It feels like, I mean, Bitten by a Camel, I wrote in just a couple months. And that was partly because I just quit my job and, and I was, I had some time and I just, once I had a vision for it, and which I didn't at first, but once once something of an outline came to me, I just started hammering away. And this book that I'm working on now feels a lot different. It's like I can kind of hover around the themes. Anyway, um, I'm writing a bit, bit on what I'm calling the archetypal Christ, the symbolic Christ, but I'm right now saying the archetypal Christ. And whatever, maybe it will be published. I have no idea. Look for it wherever books are sold on Amazon someday. Anyway, but I was thinking about the the, the giving of gifts with the Magi. And uh, also another odd part of the story. Hey, here's another big plan of mine. I'm going to have some, some astrologers, stargazers, magicians, um, horoscope readers, people who read signs in the sky that have to do with Pisces and so forth, they're going to show up um, from the East and they're going to have gifts. It doesn't seem like a good plan, like, which tells you something that, um, again, about the mystery of the, of the way the divine is slipping in the world in this story. Anyway, they bring gifts, and the gifts are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these are richly symbolic, and I'll just kind of give you, this is like a, the McDonald's drive through version of stuff I've been thinking about, but the gold is certainly related to, to the king, um, to kingship, to the queen, the king, the divine king, queen. It, that's the Egyptian. The, the Egyptians are the first to, I think, um, may have happened in Mesopotamia too, but I think the Egyptians did it first, but there was a, a blurring of the divine human king, um, which of course feeds into the, the Jewish notion of the Messiah. And certainly with Jesus, there's a, there's a blurring of the lines. And of course, Rome took that to its most extreme. But nevertheless, um, the gold is, is the thread of, of kingship. And in the ancient world, kingship was really much more about responsibility than I think the way we think about it today, which is sort of like entitled land owners, but it was much more about responsibility and uh, shepherding. Um, that's the biblical image, and Mesopotamians use it too for kings, that the king is a shepherd, and and it's humbling. Um, 
I'm just now thinking of a ritual that comes from Mesopotamia. I think it's in the Code of Hammurabi, where at once a year they took the king out of the city and stripped him bare, which is a reminder, again, of this sacred, divine, yet human um, relationship. And yes, you have great responsible responsibility. Yes, you have gold. Um, yes, you are a king, and you are profoundly human. I think when our leaders are not humanized, they um, balloon into larger-than-life um, egoic personas bent on their own survival, safety, and name. And that's the situation we're in at present around the world with world leaders. Um, you know, we ought to do that to our our presidents once a year, take them outside of Washington, D.C. And, and strip them bare and dunk them in that in the Washington pool right in front of the monument. That sounds like a good ritual. Um, <laughs> nobody's going to take me up on it, but that's a freaking good idea now that, now that it occurs to me. But anyway, the gold has something to do with this thread. And, um, but <clears throat> in the story of uh, in the in the Advent story, in the story of Jesus, it's a king, sort of. He's just a kid. He's just a baby born to unimportant parents. How is this the promised king? And so, to give the gift of gold is to express potential. That's what I think the gold is a symbol of. Will Jesus live into the potential? of his own kind of kingship? Will he live into his name? Or, or maybe his, his, the face he had before he was born, or his name beneath the name, his soul, his, the thing that only he can carry in the world, the kind of kingship or the kingdom of God that only he can inhabit and bring forth and manifest and, and make known and draw people into. It's, it's saying, we, we believe and we'll wait and see. It, it, which again, I think is, is in that kind of Advent kind of theme. Will, because anything can happen with, a, with the birth of a baby. And especially in the ancient world with no antibiotics and one fever and that's the end. And he's born under controversial circumstances to controversial parents under a king, King Herod, who doesn't want um, his throne to be usurped by any kind of messianic claim. And according to Matthew, Herod pursues this baby and wants to kill him. And they have to flee. They become refugees, crossing borders and walls and fences and getting away from uh, a cruel dictator. Yeah, that's the opening uh, of the Advent story. And, and so the gold says, all right, Will he live into his potential? And I think about that with the birth of everything, every single kid on earth and my own children. Sometimes I know, I can see it, I can taste it, I can sense it, the, their own inner radiance. And you also know shit happens. And like Joseph Campbell says, you always have the possibility for the hero or the heroine to refuse the call and refuse to live into their own radiance. And I think you have the same with Jesus. After all, he doesn't get going till he's 30 years old and lives at home with his parents, you know? I don't know if we call that a raging success. What were you doing there for 30 years, you know? It's that, it's that beckoning call. And I think the gold symbolizes that. And the frankincense and myrrh refer to death. 
and those are the um, the spices of embalmment of embalming and that's what happens to Jesus he has a kind of embalmment they didn't ex- exactly embalm like the Egyptians did in the in the first century but there's there, it's sort of like that wrapping the body up in these kinds of spices and um, resin is really what it is from a tree which has its own rich uh, symbolic nuances but imagine if a bunch of astrologers showed up at your kid's birth and they said you're going to be a king but we'll wait and see and by the way you're going to die that's what those gifts are saying and your time is limited This is really an entrance into the human story. And the human story is a story of consciousness about mortality. We're all going to die. 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 I know. Great. (laughs) Let's go to a Christmas pageant and have the wise men come in bringing beautiful gifts, just like I'm going to give my kid an iPod. No, the gifts are saying you have the potential to become the king and you're going to die. Both are true. The question is, will you become the king before you die? Will you live into the golden threads of who you truly are before your eyes are closed uh, by your own mother? Which is the story of Jesus. God, that's a that's uh, a rich image, and all this is swirling in the uh, undercurrents of our cultural insanity around Christmas, you know, and shopping and Elf on the Shelf and. Black Friday and then Cyber Monday and then last week of blah, blah, blah and two days till the final day of two days. Sh- you know, what, what, whatever. Will we live into the possibility of our own kingship, queenship before we're embalmed? See, it's the gift of death, of limits, that thrusts the human into his or her radiance. And the incarnation says God is comfortable there. Even God has limits. I think it's, I mean, I know we're, we're messing with theology, which is maybe what I'm always doing. I'm just not that aware of it. <laughs> I remember one of my professors in college said, theology just means words about God. And he was not a theologian. He said some very obvious things that one would conclude, um, one could easily conclude, this person does not believe in God. This is at the Hebrew University where I went to graduate school. And, um, but he said, don't think for a second that all this historical, critical uh, scholarship isn't also doing theology. He said something like that. It's all words of God or about God. So maybe we're always doing theology. So what, um, that was a bit of a, a tangent. Um, how shall I say it? It seems that God, even God, the divine, the mystery, has limits. And maybe it's like that 
Hebrew, again, Kabbalistic mystical notion of zimzum, which is a way of <clears throat> communicating the limits of God, that God contracts, folds in on God's self, pulls back, experiences limitations. You know, we th sometimes people say, God is all-knowing. Yeah, well, does he know what it's what limits are? Does he know what it's like to have limits and for everything to be dying and passing away and, and being reborn? Does he know mortality? You know, and in some ways the, the Christian story is trying to answer that question, saying whatever we mean by the mystery of God, the answer to that is yes, the divine knows the limits of mortality. The divine tastes death. The divine tastes rejection from the silent heavens. Why have you forsaken me? Yeah, that's, that's a kind of expression of a divine mystery that's more human, more relatable in a way. I, su I suppose in, on one level, that's what made Christianity so attractive. It got away from Santa, you know, who has a naughty list and a nice list and, um, and, and gave us a kind of divine expression of suffering and joy and tears and heartache and longing and and laughter and um and and people thought yeah all right that makes sense so what am i saying i'm saying that uh, god is comfortable with vulnerability and and that's the essence of the advent story how vulnerable is the growing of a child in the womb how vulnerable is, is birth and birthing and first breath and into the night. I mean, that, that to me is incredible as a symbol, as an image. You know, I know modern life feels like um, God is dead, which is not all that Nietzsche said. There's more to that quotation. Um, but we feel that. We feel the death of the sky parent, I think. That's my way of, of putting it, of Santa God. And yeah, I agree that God is dead. And we've come back down to the stable in a way and say, if it's not here, if it's not um, in, the, in the laughter and suffering of my own life and my children and and in the ordinary and in the turning of the seasons, then it's not anywhere. And, you know, in that sense, good, good that the, the sky God is, is dead. Um, maybe, maybe that's a bit of really the symbolic core of, of the incarnation story that's just beneath our sort of uh, cultural caricatures. You know, it reminded me of something as I was speaking now, something that I heard David White say. He says, he's asking, and this was an interview he did with uh, Krista Tippett, and he said two things that were interesting. He said, first of all, incarnation is, is becoming visible in the world. That's the real um, invitation given to the human story. Will you become visible in the world uh, to make 
he has a line, I can't remember the poem right now, but to, to, um, to bring forth what is hidden uh, into the world to be seen, to carry what is hidden as a gift to others. I think that's the line. To carry what is hidden as a gift to others. That's the incarnation, says David White. That's becoming visible. And we all have like a billion ways of remaining invisible in plain sight. Like you're at the party and you're there and you got your new outfit on and and you've got your drink in your hand and you're actually on the level of the soul completely invisible. And the incarnation says, make yourself known. Speak in your true voice. Tell me about your joy and your despair and your dreams. Show up. Show up and, and be heard in the world. That's the incarnation happening again, which again is the real um, mystical power of this symbol. It, it didn't happen, it's happening. The possibility, the pregnant possibility of it happening again is around every corner and in every conversation and in every moment. And, um, and, he, and he also said in that interview, um, I, got, I wrote it down because I, I liked it, he said, um, Will you become a full citizen of vulnerability? He's just sort of, I don't know to whom he's talking, to me, to you. Will you become a full citizen of vulnerability? Again, that's incarnation. Will you become a full citizen of vulnerability, loss, (laughs) disappearance, which you have no choice about? Maybe meaning you're going to die anyway. (laughs) There is that ultimate act of of disappearance and to, and I guess to appear in the world vulnerable like this is to be naked is to be stripped like the king is is um, to face once again the limits of your of your own mortality and your own humanness and your own mind and and your own history and histories and stories and um, and it's also so painfully beautiful what else do we want I mean don't you love it? Uh, this happened to me. I keep bringing up parties like as if I'm like a party animal. I'm really not. I've got a great poem about being at a party. Maybe I'll share it at the end if I can remember too. Hold on. I'll just write it down. Okay, so I was at this party with a, with a bunch of people, some of which I knew, and uh, some of the people I knew, but it was really loud. It was like uncomfortably loud. Like it was black back in like the clubbing days and like people were yelling. And seriously, I like, <clears throat> I lost my voice a bit from being at this party, but um a couple of times, just it like cut through the the noise and the fog and the weirdness, just like the Christmas season, the noise and the and the lights and the and the BS. Something all of a sudden cut straight through. A couple of real moments where I said, "What's going on?" And a friend of mine said, "I'm getting a divorce." That's what's going on. And just you know, for half an hour, all of a sudden. Um, things were real and 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 it was an unusual setting you know and i i'm not saying go around in your life just vomiting whatever you know <laughs> all of your feelings and thoughts and and in some ways vulnerability has to be earned as much as given and but for some reason despite all of the factors that wanted to shut that down it happened anyway and there we were talking about life and loss and 
and our ultimate uh, disappearance. So um, back to Rilke, this is the darkness that's sweet, that embraces, that holds everything, that has enough uh, space for what wants to gestate and be born in the world to grow, you know? Um, the dark that embraces the shapes and shadows of who we are. And we need that. We need that this time of year. If you feel yourself pulling in, that is not a bad thing. I know in our optimistic, you can do it, um, uh, get her done, whatever kind of, um, there's a pill for that culture. We resist it. And therefore, what wants to incarnate itself in the world and all of its mystery um, remains just a single seed, as Jesus would say instead of growing in the mystery of the humus and earth and soil and beneath the snow and until the time is ripe and birth just happens and there it is and the truth comes forward and the divine, the mystery of the divine comes forward, we might say. So let me end with just uh, maybe a few poems. Okay, here's... Here's one that I mentioned earlier, in case you need some uh, permission at the next uh, party. <laughs> this is called, or next family gathering, or next um, church service. This is called The Art of Disappearing. This is a poem that is by Naomi um, uh, Shihab Nye. I, I might not be saying her name correctly. I've never actually heard anyone say it, so um, forgive me if I, if I butchered that. Um, this is a poem that's... Um, that is honoring the kind of uh, pregnant darkness that uh, Rilke is talking about and, and is, is honoring the waiting period. It's, it's honoring uh, Advent. So it's, this is called The Art of Disappearing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone is telling you in a loud voice they once wrote a poem greasy sausage balls on a paper plate, then reply. If they say, we should get together, say, why? <laughs> it's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight, Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. Cat, that's a good poem. Um, you know, maybe that feels like a good place to end. I, I, I did think of um, T.S. Eliot, dark, 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 we all go into the dark. So... 
I don't know what you heard today. A word, a phrase, an image, something swept into your imagination for a moment that that you needed. I hope you heard a word, a phrase, an image. Um, and most of all, I, I, I hope you're hearing the invitation of this time of year to let the gestation process happen, happen unto you and in you, to be comfortable with less light and more darkness, uh, to feel the embrace, the way in which the darkness can hold you and your shadows and your contours and your edges until it's time for the mystery of the incarnation, the divine mystery, to enter yet again through the gates of vulnerability, through the womb and into the, into the earth and onto the earth. And I guess I'll say uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and don't go back to sleep. <laughs>